Well, today, um, Glenn and Chris have afforded me uh, the opportunity, a great privilege to introduce to you a passage of Scripture which I've become very excited and passionate about. Um, over the ne- over four over the next six weeks, we're going to be examining together the Great Commission, as recorded for us in Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verses sixteen through twenty. And today's sermon will itself be an introduction. Um, I've titled this "The Great Commission." Preparing to make disciples. And in introducing this text to you, I really need to say a few words about how I got here. How I came to this place of, of excitement. Or rather, rather how God brought me here. Twenty-sixth of September, 2021... Glenn delivered his introduction to his series in the Gospel of John. That um, was a fellowship meal Sunday. After the meal, as is the norm, you know, conversation strikes up. We start talking about different things. And, and uh, that particular Sunday, I ended up outside with a couple brothers, and um, we talked for maybe 30 minutes, I don't know. But at the end of the discussion, I mean, very end, even as I'm walking to my car, one of them just just asked me, he says, does the church have a mission? Or what is the mission of the church? And then my answer, though it is not really surprising, it actually surprised me. Because as I spoke the words back to this brother... It was as if God was speaking through me. And to the extent that I quoted His Word, He was. What was my answer? My answer was this text. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I missed out a part. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. That was my answer. And on and off over the last 19 months, I've looked into these questions. I have examined the scriptures, the parallel scriptures here of this account. I've read multiple books by various authors regarding certain aspects of the church, of her mission. I've even conducted an informal survey regarding the topic. And with all these things, I've come to some very convicting conclusions, many of which I will share with you as we, as we go through this passage and as we look at it. Um, over the next several weeks. So let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll read our text. O oh, great God and Father, Lord of all, 
King of the universe. Lord, indeed, we do come this morning and we, we anticipate hearing Jesus. We anticipate seeing Him. And Lord, I ask that, um, that Your Word would indeed be opened up, that You would reveal it to us, that it would pierce our, uh, our deaf ears, that we would, the scales would fall off and we would be able to see what You're saying. Lord, give us hearts that would believe and obey, that we would believe and obey the gospel, that we would believe and obey Your will, Your Word. And Father, we do ask that you, would, uh, that you would embolden us, that You would strengthen us, You would encourage us. And yes, Lord, that You would convict us, that we would bow our knees before this great King to worship Him, to learn of Him, to honor Him, to teach Him, and to obey Him. Lord, Give us love for this Lord Jesus. In Him we pray. Amen. Well, let's read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These five verses here, are Matthew's conclusion to his gospel narrative. These words with which he leaves his audience are the words towards which he has been very intentionally aiming. And we can say that actually if, if we miss what's being said here, we have missed not just the bullseye, but we've missed the entire target. Because Matthew has intentionally emplaced this target for us to see, for us to aim at, and for us to hit. So if we miss this, we've missed the complete target. And MacArthur would go even further and he says this, If a Christian understands all the rest of the gospel of Matthew, but fails to understand this closing passage... He has missed the point of the entire book. This passage is the climax and major focal point, get this, not only of this gospel, but of the entire New Testament. It is not an exaggeration to say that. In its broadest sense, it is the focal point of all Scripture, Old Testament as well as New. That's the importance of these verses. It is the bullseye. The gospel accounts in the New Testament, they do for us what Genesis does for us in the Old Testament. They serve as foundations, as anchor points. 
They serve as identity markers even. And as God is sovereign, even over the actions of fallible men, He has so determined and ordained that Matthew is placed at the head of the New Testament canon. Matthew is the point man for us. He is the point man on this patrol. And he is pointing us, he is leading us to Christ as King. And and many of you are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, with his focus, with his intent. Uh, And you already know that his emphasis is indeed the kingship of Jesus. King Jesus. The kingdom of Christ. And, And just a quick overview of the book looks something like this. Chapter 1, it establishes Jesus' legal right to the throne and introduces to us His mission. That is, He's to save His people from their sins. Chapter 2, it gives us a contrast to Herod the Great, who was proclaimed King of the Jews. Chapter 3, is Jesus is introduced to Israel by John the Baptist as the one who brings the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 4 finds Satan attempting to dethrone Jesus and to ambush him before he gets to establish this kingdom, before he gets to accomplish his mission. Chapters 5 through 7, through which Brother Terry is, is in a series, they are in a sense the rules of the kingdom or descriptors of those who are within the kingdom. 8 and 9 cover... <coughs> just additional teaching regarding the kingdom, and also discuss King Jesus' power even over sickness, over, over, over death, over, over malady. Chapter 10 is what we term the limited commission. Um, and we might call it the practice round for this here in Matthew 28. Uh, it's for the disciples to go out and to proclaim, to preach about the coming kingdom. And we're going to examine this more when we get into verse 19 here. But chapters 11 and 12 just again deal with more questions concerning the kingdom uh, and laws of the kingdom. 13 is probably the most comprehensive single portion of Scripture that deals with the kingdom of heaven. I mean, nearly all the parables talk about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13. 14 through 17 detail for us the the death of John the Baptist uh, and then the continued rise of of Jesus, so to speak, on the national stage with popularity and people being drawn to Him. Uh, It tells us about Peter's confession as the Christ, which is the climax here of, of, of Christ as King. And then subsequent to that, you have Jesus proclaiming what this looks like, how this kingdom is going to be established namely His death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, 17 um, tells us about King Jesus being exalted over Moses and Elijah, the transfiguration. 18 through 20, just continue to discuss things and actions and people within the kingdom. 19, or excuse me, 21 is the triumphal entry of this humble king. 22, relationships within the kingdom. 23 is an entire chapter devoted to pronouncing woe upon those who would hinder others from entering into the kingdom. 
24 and 25, just various aspects of the return of this king and of the unveiling of the kingdom. 26 and 27, of course, uh, detail for us his betrayal, trial, his death and burial. They inform us of a planned insurrection and rejection of the true king of Israel. And then here in 28, we find Jesus as king over death and the grave. So these verses here, 16 through 20, they are for us some of the very final words that King Jesus spoke to His servants before He ascended to heaven to sit on His throne. Well, considering the effort, the great effort that Matthew exerted to really develop this thought, to to present to us Jesus as King, His consistent use of the word King, Kingdom, that terminology, that emphasis. We really need to slow down here and to really come to terms with, with these words here, these words of the King. We really need to come to grips with them. Well, as we begin to consider just what Jesus' mission for the church is, which is what we have here in this text, uh, I want you to be asking yourselves the very same questions that I was asked. That is, what is the purpose of the church? What is her mission? Why does the church exist? So be mulling over these thoughts, these questions, as we examine this passage. And just like we can frame these questions very, indi- very much individually, you know, why am I here? Why do I exist? What's my reason, my purpose for existence? Just like we can, in- we can frame this individually, these are questions that regard identity. And, and identity, whether it's individual or whether it's collective identity, I've said this before, is only determined by relationship to God Himself. God willing, we'll answer these questions and we'll come to understand not only our identity, but we got to first grapple with some preliminaries. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Namely, disciples, obedience, and worship. Those are the three preliminaries that we must deal with before we get to the mission of the church. So our text begins in verse 16, but the eleven disciples. Now these words are, are set within the immediate framework of the resurrection. We have here uh, one through, really, let's just go to ten here of the account of the resurrection of Jesus and how individuals, particularly the two Marys, interacted with it and how the word spread. So they're set within the framework of the resurrection. We're told how the women, they went to the empty tomb uh, and they, they found an angel there. And he instructed them to go inform the disciples that Jesus had risen. He's not here. He's not dead. He has risen. Go tell him that Jesus isn't here. Also tell him, go to Galilee, and he will show himself to them there. 
So the women depart, and while even they're on the way, Jesus Himself appears to them and says the same thing. <coughs> go tell my disciples, go tell my brethren that I'm not dead. Go to Galilee. They'll see me there. So here in 16, <clears throat> the disciples, they've been informed of this. They know Jesus' instructions, and they're on their way to Galilee. And notice, though, that uh, in this whole chapter, Matthew speaks of disciples, or the disciples, as a group. That is, they're together. Uh, there, you know, there might have been one here or another there, but in large, they're spoken of as a single collective unit, as, as a group. And verse 16 makes this a little more specific when it says, the eleven disciples. And of course, this is in reference to all of the chosen apostles minus Judas, uh, who is no longer living. So, they were together. And just a note here, it is, certainly is important that they were together. It's very important that they're spoken of as, as a single unit, as, a, as one collective. But being together, being together as a group of individuals, doesn't mean that you're fulfilling your mission. It doesn't mean that you're accomplishing that. No, you could be together and rejecting your mission. Uh, you could be planning a rebellion, an insurrection. So being together doesn't necessitate that you're fulfilling your mission. You could just simply be together and be ignoring your mission. You know, the same way that a group of employees could get together and just chew the fat rather than actually do their job. Well, fellowship alone cannot be equated with a missional mindset. Fellowship cannot be equated to the Great Commission. Now, back here to the 11 disciples, whether or not other disciples were present here, we're not specifically told. Many would think that the appearance here of Jesus to these 11 also includes the 500 of which Paul spoke in 1 Corinthians. Um, but, you know, whether that is or isn't the case, there is at the very least a point made here to emphasize the 11. And Scripture later instructs us that it was these 11 men plus Paul and the Old Testament prophets that served as the foundation of the church. They laid the foundation. And it is these men, it's their actions, it's their words, their teachings regarding King Jesus that God used to establish the church of Christ of which you and I are a part today. And don't get me wrong, there is most assuredly a, uh, a sense in which these men performed a very much different role than you and I play today. But there's another sense in which they serve as examples for us that just as the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, so do we follow them as they follow Christ. So in that way, what Jesus said to these 11 disciples, He is saying to you and to me. 
Well, we have these disciples, this group, going to Galilee. They proceeded to Galilee. So just help us to, to reorient ourselves to the map, to the physical ge- geographical map of Israel. Recall that, if you will, Israel is bracketed on the west and on the east by water. You have the Mediterranean Sea there on the west, and you have the Jordan River on the east. Um, now, in the south, you have Judea, the furthest most being Beersheba. And then, but the most prominent, the most well-known would be Jerusalem. They're just a little bit north of Beersheba. The northern boundary would include Mount Hermon and Caesarea Philippi. Um, contemporarily, we would recognize Caesarea Philippi as being within the Golden Heights. You've heard that term in the news, in the newspaper, in the media, the Golan Heights. That's where this is located. Um, but the most discussed area in the north is just 25 miles south of Caesarea Philippi, and that is Galilee. This region here, it includes cities such as Nazareth, Nain, Chorazin, Capernaum, Cana, Tiberias. And incidentally, this, this city of Tiberias <clears throat> is uh, it's a, the name where the Sea of Tiberias came from. It's a Roman name named after the, the river Tiber in Italy. And the Sea of Tiberias is also known as Sea of Chinnereth or Sea of Galilee. So we could say here about Galilee that this was the location which Jesus chose to set up His ministry headquarters, shall we say. Um, there's a couple passages, Luke 23 and John 2 uh, would, would kind of confirm that. This is where He began to call His disciples from Galilee. Uh, and in a way, this is where He chose to end His ministry, if we could even use that term. Uh, it was here in Galilee. But it's interesting to, show, to see that Jesus chose to reveal Himself here rather than in Jerusalem where He was killed, where the disciples were. He chose to reveal Himself to them in Galilee. And I think that we could probably spend weeks on studying this, but I think at least in part what He was communicating, why He chose to do this can be deduced from Isaiah's description Galilee of the Gentiles. And that is, King Jesus' reign and rule, it did very much start within the land of the Jews. It was in, within Israel's borders. But, it extends to the far reaches of the Gentiles. And there will be, as I read earlier in the Catechism, there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and His kingdom. So I think at the very least, you have Jesus really wanting to point His disciples to this fact. They are within the land of Israel. And it starts there. But that's not the end. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. So, when exactly did these men go to Galilee? 
again, we're not 100% sure. The angel and Jesus, they both gave immediate instruction for them to go to Galilee. That was one of the first things they, they told them to do. Go to Galilee. But John 20 tells us that Jesus first appeared to His disciples on the evening of Resurrection Sunday. And, and Luke 24 also confirms this, you know, with the two on the road to Emmaus. And then they came back and, and, and boom, there He is again. A second time, a week later, presumably in Jerusalem, Jesus appears to them again. And then we're told in John 21 that His third appearance, it says it very explicitly, the third time He appeared to them was in Galilee. Acts 1.3 says that Jesus appeared over a period of 40 days, with the final time being at the Mount of Olives, which is again outside Jerusalem. Well, to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter when the appearance occurred, but it, kind, it does help us to, to somewhat understand the timing to get the context, to get the, the, the historical setting of it. Well, nevertheless, the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee. Now, there is actually a route that um, is known today as the Jesus Trail. And it goes from Jerusalem to Capernaum. It's about 40 miles long. But it traverses through Samaria. Would the disciples have been bold enough to travel through Samaria at this time? Don't know. Maybe. I mean, they went through it before with Jesus. Um, but we, don't, we aren't told. So it's at least 40 miles, but maybe they, didn't, they weren't up to it didn't have the, the boldness and they wanted to skirt it like most other Jews. Regardless, 40 miles. Um, it's also a mountainous path, uh, at least from Jericho, where it, it drops, it descends from Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and it descends down to Jericho. It's at least mountainous there into uh, kind of the river valley. But at the very end, again, he says, meet him on the mountain. So at least a portion of the travel is mountainous. It's not just flat terrain. And, and even a downhill walk is physically tiring. It puts stress on your body in ways that flat terrain doesn't. You feel it in your, in your shins. You feel it in your knees. You feel it at the bottom of your feet. You're prone to blister there because you're, you're, you're trying to prevent yourself from just going headlong down. So it's, it's, it's physically taxing. Um, now, a, um, a very fit team, a very highly trained or equipped team, technically, technically could tra- traverse this in one day. That's a, that's a long hike in one day, but technically it could be done. But for the normal person, especially those that are under stress and fear, this is a journey that's going to take several days, three to seven probably. Um, even if they were accustomed to walking everywhere, which you and I aren't. Nevertheless, they proceeded to Galilee. How did they go? In what state of mind were they when they went to Galilee? And we aren't told here all that they were thinking, but we do have some descriptors 
from some of the previous verses here in 28 regarding the women um, and the parallel accounts of their reaction and their demeanor here post-resurrection. Some of these words, fear, astonishment, terrified, startled, troubled, doubt, unbelief, marvel, great joy. Those are the words that Scripture uses to describe the disciples' reaction post-resurrection. Excuse me. Now these words, they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, aren't they? You don't really have anything in the middle. They're either terrified or they're super excited. Um, None of them fall within apathy or nonchalance. And when you're experiencing these types of emotions on each end of the spectrum, that itself will wear you out, won't it? It will exhaust you. Well, remember now that these guys, they've just witnessed a trusted associate, whom they've been with for three years, betray their master and then commit suicide. When the mob came to arrest Jesus, Peter their fearless leader, hadn't been doing his sword practice, and instead of cutting the guy's head off, he cut an ear off. Okay? He had that tunnel vision. He just wasn't quite all there. But he did manage to summon up the courage and go into the court of the high priest, along with, I think, John, um, just so he could be there near Jesus to find out, I'm the leader of this group. I've, I've got to recover some of this here. I've got to be near Jesus. But it wasn't long until he realized the situation in which he was, which he found himself, and he got scared, and he denied Jesus three times, even in front of a servant girl. And then he went out and wept bitterly. So just completely overcome with sorrow. One of the followers there in the garden uh, was seized and got so afraid that he booked it, leaving his clothes behind. Probably Mark. The Jewish leaders, the Roman military, we have this here in in, um, 11 through 15. We find them um, creating and spreading Fake news, okay? They, that they were spreading the, the tale that these disciples, they were guilty of theft of a corpse and um, that they were going to spread themselves are spreading fake news. So they're, they're, they're lying, they're thieves. That's the kind of people that these disciples are. That's the word that's being spread by the religious leaders, by the political leaders, by the military leaders. And the disciples know about this. They know about this word that everybody's out looking for them. And at some point, it appears that um, that they come to the conclusion that the elders, that Pilate, that the soldiers... They're actually correct. Not that they're correct in their, that they 
stolic body. But they're, the, but they're correct in the sense that they just want to forget the whole thing ever happened and move on. Because these guys said, let's just go fishing. Okay? Let's, maybe it's better if we just forget the whole thing ever happened and go back to fishing. Because when they met, they were together behind locked doors. They were scared. So from these words, the various scriptural accounts, we gain a fairly clear picture to the state of mind in which these men were walking to Galilee. But still they walked. They walked nonetheless 40 miles plus or minus downhill, uphill from Jerusalem to Galilee. From the capital city to their hometown. Remember, the angel called them men of Galilee. Men of Galilee. So they're going back home. How kind of Christ to tell them to meet Him in their hometown. Amid all the turmoil, all the uneasiness, all the unrest surrounding the crucifixion, the resurrection, the controversy over it all, Jesus told them to meet meet Him in a familiar place. Go back home. Go to the place where you're comfortable, the place where you know. It's also possible that the mountain which Jesus designated was where He was transfigured. We don't really know, but it's possible. So with all of these thoughts, all of these feelings in the mix, going back home, going up and down terrain, you've got fake news going on, you're terrified, you're overjoyed, you don't know what you're feeling, but you're walking. With all of these things going on in their minds, in their bodies, as the disciples get closer, surely they're recalling some fond memories They're seeing some comfort in some familiar trails, perhaps even familiar faces along the journey as they get close to their hometown. Surely, though, it would have been easy to just, let's just go and hang out at mom and dad's for a little bit. I know mom's got some good fig jam or something. Let's just just go hang out there. No, but they kept going to the mountain. They kept going, but it was still a mountain. Familiar? Yes. But it's still an uphill walk at the end of a long journey. Well, despite the fears, despite the doubts that they have, the hope, the anticipation is stronger than these. The anticipation and the hope of seeing Jesus. Tell my brethren to leave for Galilee. There they will see me. Jesus told them, you'll see me on the mountain." Still here in verse 16, we see that the disciples obeyed the command of Jesus. The angels had given them this instruction. The women who came to the empty tomb um, gave them this instruction from the angels, from Jesus Himself. Um, They told them that Jesus was going ahead and He would appear to them in Galilee. And here we find that they were doing exactly as they were instructed to do by the angel, by the Marys, by Jesus. They were obedient. They were obedient. Now, if you recall a couple weeks ago, as I concluded our series in Micah, we were given an example of some teaching on what to do when you're waiting on the Lord. And here again, we have some of these exact same principles laid out for us. 
Are are you waiting some guidance from King Jesus? Are you waiting to see what he has to say to you? Would you maybe you would just like for him to appear and tell you what you need to do? Right where you are. Well, first of all, you need to be in submission to him. You need to obey him. The lordship of Christ and the kingship of Jesus is the same thing. It's the same thing. Jesus told these men, through secondary means, that we need to be willing to listen to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, even as they share the revelation of Jesus Christ from the Word to us. As they say, Jesus says this, and they say that to you and me, we need to be willing to hear that. Because these disciples received this word through secondary means. So when he says, go to a specific mountain, go to a certain location, are you willing to obey? Are you waiting on the Lord to reveal Himself to you? Well, be where He says you need to be. Go where He says you ought to go. In addition to obedience we see that, the, that waiting on the Lord, it entails anticipation. They were watching while they were waiting. They're watching for Him. Jesus is going to appear to you. Okay, let's look for Him. Let's go to Galilee. They're waiting. They're watching. They're, they, they're anticipating Him coming. This is much like the bridesmaids who are waiting on the groom to come with their oil lamps. They were watching They were waiting. They knew He was coming. Um, Therefore, be on the alert, for you don't know what hour your Master is coming. Be on the alert. Watch. Again, looking for and hastening the day of the Lord, the the coming of the day of God. Be looking for it. Hastening it. Come, come, come. Well, In verse 17, Jesus arrives. They finally see Him. When the verse says, they saw Him, it confirms to us that the word which was spoken to the women by the angel, the word which Jesus spoke to the women, it actually came to pass. They will see Me. You will see. And they saw So this tells us about the veracity of the Scriptures. It's immutability that Scripture cannot be broken. It will come to pass. One other thing here before moving on. People can see Jesus without seeing Him. And we have that from the account in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. They were with Him. They saw Him. They talked with Him. But they didn't see Him until several miles, a sermon and a prayer. And then they saw Him. Sometimes it takes multiple sightings. Sometimes it takes multiple exposures for our blind eyes to finally see, to recognize Him. But the more that we hear His voice... 
the more that we study his form. There he, that's Jesus. He's walking. That's him. I know that gate. The more we study his form, his actions, the more that we hear his teachings, his word, the more readily we will see him. And the place where you and I can most clearly see Him and get to know Him is in the, His revelation in the Holy Scriptures. We get to see Him and know Him a little bit through creation. We get to see about that power, some of His immutability, some of His consistency, some of His eternality. But we get to most clearly see Him in the revelation of the Scriptures. Well... A disciple of Jesus is one who is seeking guidance, who is listening to Jesus' words, is one who is obedient, one who watches for Jesus and is anticipating His coming. Those are character traits of a disciple. A disciple of Christ is one who recognizes Him. My sheep hear my voice. They hear my voice. They know me. But more than these, a disciple is someone who worships and who worships the king. All men worship. You know, that's not the question. But whom do you worship? Worship is a heart response. And wherever your heart is, there your thoughts are going to be, there your words are going to be, your songs, your actions... They reflect your heart. The one flows from the other. A believer's entire life should be intentional worship. You know, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable worship, your reasonable service. And this is the same pattern that we see in the epistles. You've got praise. You've got doctrine about who God is. And then you've got application. Knowing God and living like there's a king. When the reality of who God is, when it impacts a regenerated heart, it causes worship. And if there's no change in your thinking, no change in your speech, no change in your attitude or your desire, there's no change. There's no worship. That's why uh, Judas didn't worship Christ. His allegiances were elsewhere. His desires were somewhere else. His thinking was dead. Worship is what believers do instinctively when they see Jesus. That's what happened in verse 9. The ladies came up, Jesus met him, they greeted him, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Instinctively, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped. The worship of God flows from an obedient heart. It flows from a submissive heart. And... By the way, both of these things presuppose that all men are slaves. Slaves to something. We all serve someone. And even if you serve no one but yourself, 
You're still you're obeying your own heart, your own internal drives, your own purpose, your own mission, your own desires. You're held captive to yourself. All men serve someone. What are we talking about here? Remember, this is the introduction, verses 16 and 17, is the introduction that Matthew gives to us of what we term the Great Commission. And what will follow in verses 18 through 20 is the intention that King Jesus has for His disciples, for His church. This is His will. This is Jesus' will for us. The Great Commission is the mission of the church. But as we are looking today here at these 16 and 17, we recognize that this is simply the prelude. This is the preamble. This is the prologue to the mission. It isn't the mission itself. These verses inform us of the historical setting, the mindset, the feelings, the inclination of these men, the hearts of the disciples. Yet none of these can rightly be defined as the mission of the church. Being together, fellowship, isn't the mission of the church. Doing hard things together traversing this terrain, going through this, experiencing all this together, isn't the mission of the church. Being a witness to and experiencing amazing, miraculous events is not the mission of the church. Studying the Scriptures isn't the mission of the church. These men were with Jesus for three years. Judas knew this. Obedience to the king isn't even the mission of the church. Watching and waiting for the king isn't the mission of the church. Worship isn't the mission of the church. Now, we cannot accomplish the mission without these things being true of us. It's impossible. You cannot accomplish the mission of Jesus Christ unless you are fellowshipping, doing hard things together, you're experiencing the, the, the life and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, His miraculous power. You're studying the Scriptures. You're obeying Him. You're waiting. You're watching for Him. You're worshiping. You cannot complete the mission without those things being true of you. But none of them can be equated with the mission. Now, there may be some listening and hearing these words for the first time, not necessarily chronologically in your life that you've heard them, but with ears to hear. The truth may be dawning on you that not only are you not fulfilling Christ's mission for His church, for His people, but you aren't even a disciple of His. And if that's you, friend, see here that Christ comes to men in their hometowns. He comes to people, He reveals Himself to them in multiple times, in various ways, different lengths of time. He can reach you behind these locked doors in which you've locked yourself. He can reach you as you're walking along the road. He will feed you on the seashore. Come have breakfast. He'll meet you on the mountain. His love and His patience is beyond comprehension. It's so amazing that He would wait on us. That He would reveal Himself to us again and again and again. He'd call us to climb the mountain. You'll see me there. 
Suffer through the pain. You'll see me there. But recognize that Jesus is, is king. And you're either his subject or you're not. So bow your knee before him now while you still got breath in your lungs. Bow before him now willingly while there's still an opportunity to ask for these terms of peace. Perhaps you're already a slave of Christ. You're already a disciple, a follower. But maybe these, these verses have hit you in a new way. Maybe you recognize what you thought you ought to be doing, what you thought was your mandate, your duty, your responsibility, your privilege, your joy. It actually isn't your mission at all. You see, all of these things, fellowship, family, teaching, worship, camaraderie, obedience, all of these prepare us to accomplish the mission. We won't be able to complete it without these facets being true of us. These aspects of faith, these traits, they ought to characterize individual churches and Christian congregations. But traits are not identity. They inform us about identity. The word Christian identifies a person as being Christ's. Little Christ's. The church is His body. It is His church. It is identified as belonging to Christ's. It is identified as belonging to Jesus. His church. So we find that if we find that these traits are not true of us, or the traits are true, but we aren't joined together with Him in His mission, then we, like some of the disciples here, are doubtful. We're doubtful. If these traits aren't true of us, then we're doubting. Or if they are true, but we aren't completing the mission that He set for us, we're doubting. We're either doubting our identity in Christ... Or we're doubting His identity as Christ. And as identity is defined by relationship to Him, we're either Christians or we aren't. We're either churches or we aren't. It's therefore imperative that we do ask these questions here. Am I a Christian? Are we a church? You know, Francis Schaeffer and, and, and Sinclair Ferguson made some really, you'd think, overly simplistic statements. Schaeffer said this, he said, Christians, or excuse me, churches should be made up of Christians. Duh. Churches should be made up of Christians, yes. Or maybe you prefer Sinclair Ferguson. He said, church members ought to be regenerated. Okay, they're, they're really simple. But they're quite profound, actually. Or even last week, Brother Chris, he said this, It is essential that we know that we are united with Him as we go to battle. It is essential that we know. And so when, when these men are saying these very simple statements... Churches ought to be made up of Christians. Church members ought to be regenerated. 
we've got to ask, am I a Christian? Am I regenerate? We've got to know that we are united with Him. So if we cannot say that we are committed to King Jesus and to His mission, either as an individual or as a church, then we should, as MacArthur says, re-examine our relationship to the Lord and reason for existence. Why do I exist? Why am I here? Why do we exist? Why are we here? So may the Lord Jesus Christ use these verses in Matthew to challenge you, to convict you, to mature you, even as He is using them in my life for those very things. He is challenging me, He's convicting me, and He's maturing me. So may He call you to faith. May He call you to obedience. May He call you to fellowship. May He call you to worship. But more than that, may He call you into His mission to make disciples. As we continue through this passage in the next coming weeks, we're going to examine this. What is the mission of the church? Well, let's pray. Great God, again we come and we say thank you, Lord Jesus, that, um, that you reveal yourself to us, that you show yourself to blind people, deaf people, dead heart people, and that you bring sight to blind eyes, you bring hearing to deaf ears, and you cause the lame to jump and to run around with joy. Thank you, Lord, for giving us life, for being the light of men. Um, Lord, thank you for showing yourself to the disciples in Galilee, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd continue to show yourself to us, continue to teach us about you, to love us, to forgive us, Um, Cause us, Lord, to worship you, to know you more and more, and lead us after Jesus. May we follow you as you are accomplishing your mission. Help us to love you. We pray through Jesus. Amen.